This is The Bright Idea. The podcast from Stanford Law School that highlights some of the most promising and inspirational work in environmental sustainability from around the world. I'm Buzz Thompson, a professor at Stanford Law School and your host for The Bright Idea. We are beginning this series by talking to past winners of Stanford Law School's Bright Award. The Bright Award is an annual environmental award given to individuals who have dedicated their careers to improving sustainability and conservation. Stanford Law School alumnus Ray Bright established the Bright Award with the goal of recognizing the winner's prior work and extending that work into the future. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with the 2015 Bright Award winner, Dame Polly Cortis, who won the Bright Award for her efforts in guiding thousands of business leaders to more sustainable business practices. She is the founding director of the University of Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership, which since its foundation in 1988, has grown to become an internationally recognized center of excellence in sustainability solutions and leadership. One element of the Institute for Sustainability Leadership is the Prince of Wales Business and Sustainability Program an executive training program, which has become the global benchmark for sustainability leadership education. Over its first quarter century, it has trained over 3,200 alumni from 1,500 organizations. For her work, Dame Polly Cortis was appointed a lieutenant in the Royal Victorian Order as part of the Queen's 2008 birthday honors, and most recently was appointed Dame of the Commander of the Order of the British Empire as part of the Queen's 2016 birthday honors. So Dame Polly, and I promise that's the last time uh, <laughs> that I will uh, refer to you in uh, uh, that formal fashion, it's a privilege again to have you on this podcast today. Uh, thank you, Buzz. So it's wonderful to be here. And it takes me right back to that amazing visit to Stanford, where we had such an exciting and inspirational time. Uh, so I'm grateful for this opportunity to uh, look back and perhaps do a little bit of looking forward as well. And I'm looking forward to exactly the same thing. I want to start out, though, for all of uh, uh, our listeners uh, who uh, may not be uh, familiar with the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership, to ask you if you could uh, just talk for a few minutes about exactly what it is that the Institute does. Right. Well, we are a, uh, an institute within the University of Cambridge, uh, and we uh, exist to build leadership and solutions for a sustainable economy. And we focus particularly on working with business leaders, uh, but also policymakers and leaders in financial institutions. Those three critical actors that have to be deployed, uh, encouraged, supported and challenged uh, to deliver uh, the kind of uh, uh, economic models that uh, are good for both 
a business for good policy, but also good for society and the environment. Uh, and we work uh, through a variety of means as uh, we have a very significant range of executive and graduate education programs we run all around the world. Uh, we've, um, since we last met, we've built a significant online uh, uh, program offering, which brings in thousands of ex uh, executives that normally couldn't come to us in the past. Uh, but we also have um, a research portfolio. And really, uh, importantly, from our point of view, we bring groups of leaders, companies and policymakers together to tackle problems and develop solutions that they can't resolve on their own. So working, for example, with the banks, the insurance sector, with big asset owners and asset managers, all designed to try to help find um, solutions that will lead to systemic change. Uh, we have around 10,000 alumni now all around the world. It's absolutely amazing to have the sense of all those people out there who we have engaged with and who we keep in touch with. And finally, um, we have the good fortune to have His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales as our patron. Uh, and I've been working with him for 27 years now. So uh, that's been an extraordinary privilege. I have recently been reading several of your uh, uh, recent columns. And one column that you wrote at the beginning of the pandemic on April 2nd, in that column, you note that it's tempting to talk about getting, quote, back to normal, close quote, but that going back to normal is not what many millions of people aspire to or deserve. And I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about what you meant by that, because my guess is a lot of people think that getting back to normal is exactly what they want to do at this stage. Well, I suppose uh, my first response to that is that I don't believe we will ever get back to the way things were, even if we want to. I think this pandemic has changed some things uh, profoundly forever. Uh, and many of those things I hope will be for the better because I think what um, it has done is revealed to us um, just what a lack of um, resilience we had in our economic systems. That's obvious and shocking, but actually it also revealed astonishing and a deep uh, fragility and vulnerability in society. It just showed us how many people uh, in the current system were clinging on by their fingertips uh, to uh, any sort of um, quality of life um, in a system which is for many spectacularly failed to deliver health and well-being and prosperity. So for those people, of course, they're hoping that, that things will get better because for many of them, they couldn't have been much worse. So I think it's also demonstrated to us something very uh, profound about our ability to withstand system shocks. So uh, not just shocks to our social and our economic systems, but the fact that we are um, fundamentally unprepared for these kind of shocks, which we know probably are going to be coming down the track um, with greater intensity, with ferocity even, uh, when we look at issues around the destruction of the environment and at the impact, the likely impact of climate change. 
One of the terms that you used a moment ago was resilience, which is a term that we are hearing more and more frequently. Could you talk a little bit about what a resilient society, a resilient business community would look like? Let me uh, start perhaps with the idea of um, a resilient business community. I think many of the companies that we've been working with over the years felt that they had pretty resilient business models. They felt that they had pretty resilient supply chains. They felt that by uh, being um, ha by having introduced just-in-time efficiency into so many of their processes, that they were um, being um, efficient and economical. And in a single stroke, we discovered just how unresilient those supply chains turned out to be. We only have to see what happened to the uh, food stocks on our shelves um, within days of, of, the, of the lockdown here to, re to realize that uh, many of those supply chains uh, had critical dependencies in them of which the companies themselves weren't fully aware of communities and societies right down that supply chain, which turned out to be far more vulnerable um, than they ever realized. And of course, the resilience of the systems of, of dependence on, um, um, on people being present in offices to work together um, which we've suddenly had to, to reinvent turned out also to be um, based on assumptions which we've never really challenged. But I suppose in terms of resilience for communities, what people are worrying about now, and absolutely rightfully so, are their futures. They're worrying about their futures, their jobs, um, their ability to pay their mortgages on their houses, and their children's futures. And what it reveals to us uh, is that um, these, the, re the resilience has been shored up in many ways by the ways in which communities have pulled together, but not by the economic models that we have put in place. And how does the concept of resilience link back to environmental issues? Well, I think we know only too well, uh, you know through your own work, we certainly know through ours, that the, um, our environmental systems are already close to breaking point. We have undermined the resilience of those systems to the point that we have set in train uh, destructions that will never be recovered and if that if we don't alter that trajectory we'll start to play back with um devastating effects on our own uh, human well-being if we look at if you put to one side for a moment the challenge of climate change if you look at what we have done uh, to biodiversity to the natural world in terms of um depleting uh, the stocks of natural capital upon which we depend to the point of massive loss of soil quality, um, uh, water uh, security uh, challenges, destruction of forests, whichever way you look, we have undermined the natural resilience um, uh, of the systems upon which we depend. Uh, and to an extent that we, um, we have, I think, to regard our 
crisis we face is not just a climate crisis, it's an ecological as well as a climatic crisis. What we're looking at is a destruction of environmental systems that will, may never recover, or if they do, may take millions of years to recover. I do think nature is resilient, but I think in the interim, we will destroy nature as we know it now, as we have come to depend on it. I'm curious, since the pandemic crisis hit, in the United States, we have had to, at various points in time, close down state parks or national parks. And one of the things that we have found is during those periods of time that we've closed them down, nature has taken back those parks. So in Yosemite Park, for example, I was talking to a ranger the other day who said that during the period of time that they were shut down, the wildlife came down into the valley itself to a degree that he had not seen for uh, during his lifetime. And I'm just curious whether or not you've seen that uh, type of natural recovery taking place at all in England or Europe. I just absolutely love these stories. I agree with you. I've heard so many stories from all around the world of how nature is resurrecting itself in our absence. I mean, in those first few months with all the anxiety and stress, I think we also discovered um, the astonishing uh, beauty of the natural world and the peace of that, that um, living without our own human um, cacophony can actually bring. And I'm encouraged by that because I think it's given people a sense of what, to, what good looks like. We know in reality that, um, that it won't, at that level of pure, unadulterated nature, it's unrealistic probably to expect that that's going to stay, but it's given us something to aspire to. And in London, because nobody wants to go on the underground, um, the bike uh, take up of bikes has just absolutely ballooned. And now people are starting to say, do we want those cars back on the roads? Do we actually really need them back on the roads? Of course, uh, we all know what it's like. There is, we quickly forget these things, but I'm hoping that in the interval, in this short, amazing interval, where we can get this sense of, of doing things differently, that we will, that we will actually um, seize this moment. I've been talking to my team and saying, do you know, this, this, this shocking, terrible pandemic has also opened a little chink uh, of opportunity to do things differently. And we need to drive a wedge in it and keep that chink open and open it and open it, open it, not let ourselves slip back because there are so many good things that we can do differently. In looking again at some of the columns that you have recently written, I saw that you are launching something called your Transformation 2030 Plan, which is looking at how you can help achieve three major system changes over the next decade in business, financial, and industrial systems with a focus on decarbonization of the economy, restoring and protecting nature and building inclusive and resilient societies. Some of the things that we've already been talking about. Could you explain a little bit exactly how the Transformation 2030 plan is being developed and what you hope it will achieve? 
yes, we realize that we, there are some things which we have to change in the next decade if we're going to set ourselves on a path for a long-term uh, and more sustainable future. And so we decided we would identify those three areas that you mentioned, decarbonizing the global economy, uh, protecting and restoring nature and building inclusive and resilient societies, and that we would marshal all our work around that. At every turn now, our campaign is to say over the next 10 years, we're going to focus on delivering some really uh, clear outcomes uh, that from that focus on those areas. So um, putting a target on how much we would like to see global emissions being reduced by through our activities and our agency. Um, putting a target on how much we can point to a decline in nature and a restoration of nature through the companies and the policymakers that we work with and working on issues of social inclusion, really trying to understand how the companies we work with can set an example of how the corporate sector can play its part in building that um, uh, socially inclusive and just society. And what's so interesting about this, I think, is that um, what we've seen, the change that we've seen in recent years um, in good companies, in big companies, in major financial institutions, we've shifted from having to sell them the problem which I spent the first 15 years of my life trying to do. I had to tell them why there was a problem. We're way past that now. The real challenge now is, to, is the challenge of delivery. It's how they're asking us, okay, what do we have to do? They get it. Uh, and of course, uh, there are no simple and easy answers. But I know, we know that... Um, we are not moving fast enough and we're not going to scale quickly enough. So one of the other things that we've set up that I'm very excited by at the moment, we've just set up a big um, new project um, this year, um, our accelerator program. And we've got two halves to it. One of them is how do we help small and medium sized businesses uh, be, build a new way, uh, a new wave of business solutions to, the, to these big sustainability issues, pushing the boundaries, being the disruptors, being the innovators, fleet of foot able to move quickly and seize opportunities. So we have a, we're opening, we're starting now already to offer acceleration processes virtually, but soon we hope that we'll be able to offer a, a physical space where we can have startups who come and co-locate with us. But the other thing that we're doing at the moment, which is at the, more at the academic end, uh, is to what we've called, established what we're calling our Cambridge Impact Accelerator. And that's what we're trying to do is to accelerate the um, take up of academic knowledge into practice. How do you take what, as you will know from Stanford, the phenomenal knowledge that we are surrounded by, knowledge, experience, insight, it's often difficult for to get that into practice um, quickly. So we have um, set up this um, accelerated process with small, fast-moving, um, challenge-led teams, hand-picked from the best thinking we can find in the university, uh, and bringing them together with industry partners and policymakers and people who can put the money up and the disruptors to look at how we can take specific problems and within a defined period of time 
see how far we can get in cracking them. We've got the, the one example we're working on at the moment, which is absolutely amazing, is on achieving zero carbon flight. So we're working with the uh, engineering department where they have the Whittle Laboratory, which is famous for its aviation uh, research with, uh, with the um, uh, biotech and chemical engineering departments with our business school to pull together um, some of the most amazing special, um, we call them SAS, um, special, um, special services teams, if you like, to develop a series of sprints, sometimes in competition with one another. So that if you look at aviation, you might, you know, fuel is one option, redesign the plane is another. We're putting these two teams in competition with each other and giving them a nine month period to come up with the best available answers they can. Uh, we've just had today the um, British Cabinet Office on the phone to us saying, can we be part of this? You know? And actually what they're saying is, actually we'd like to look at how you can accelerate the take up of policy. How can you speed up good policy making? So we're looking, this accelerator concept for us is how is, is built around the idea and the need to speed things up, which used to feel we, we used to feel we had, even though we were impatient, we felt we had more time. We now we don't. Now we now we know that we don't. So that's very exciting for us. It's probably one of the big, you know, it's taken up most of my day today. Um, because assembling these teams and getting them in the right frame of mind and encouraging them first to ask themselves, what is the question before you plunge into what is the answer is quite an, it's, 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 it takes quite a lot of effort because engineers in particular like to get to the answer. And I'm saying, hang on a second, let's get to the question. So that's been fun. So that's an excellent example. As somebody who works in the policy field, I'm actually interested in the answer to the question of how do you speed up the policy process? Well, have you uh, given any thoughts to that? No, because we only got asked, we only got approached by the cabinet office this morning, and I'm probably announcing something to the world that hasn't been announced to their boss. Uh, but we, they are interested because they know that um, it's really, I think, what they are interested in is um, how you innovate in policy making. And that's got us into a really, really interesting discussion about what you mean by innovate. So, you know, they're, but they're, they're up for having some really um, radical opportunities to engage with some of the brightest and best people we have in Cambridge to turn their world upside down. That's my that's excellent. That's, that's excellent news. I'm actually quite fascinated by the fact that the first part of your accelerator program is working with small and medium-sized businesses. Yep. Does that suggest that you see a, a special uh, important role for small and medium-sized businesses in society in getting us to a more resilient world? Yes, I've always wanted to work with what we call SMEs, um, but they've never been able to afford us and we've never been able to afford them. The truth is that they don't, they're time poor and they uh, and their cash poor and we were so we were a little bit stuck but last year we applied for a european grant um which was specifically aimed at helping um small and medium-sized enterprises unlock their potential 
to deliver solutions and at the same time to make their businesses more resilient. We think there is a very exciting role for them to play, but it's also, I think, where some of the brightest and the best talent is going. And what's so interesting is that the big companies are now knocking on our doors saying, can we be involved with all these small companies? Because they know that therein lies investment opportunities and disruption. Risk and opportunity in equal measure for a big company, and they want to be part of it. So you just noted that one of the things that large companies find interesting about the small and mid-sized enterprises is uh, their disruptive power. Uh, so is, is part of your focus also a, a recognition that this segment of the economy can disrupt the traditional approaches that business has taken to problems? Yeah, there's something really extraordinary about the kind of entrepreneurial spirit that I think it's hard sometimes to build and sustain in a big organization. It's really hard because you have structures and rules and regulations. And we did a wonderful project, a FinTech project with where we had uh, three big banks, um, a food producer and a supermarket and um, three uh, startups. And the idea was to try and look at the, um, at how you could create value all along the, the value chain of, a tea, of tea production. So we started with a tea producer in Malawi uh, to the supermarket in London and the banks that were financing them. They, so those were two big companies at the beginning and end of the chain and then looked at how a new way of doing business could enable more value from that tea production to, to stay in the hands of the tea growers, the plantation growers on the ground rather than being siphoned off all the way along the, the value chain. It was a really interesting project and using blockchain technologies, we were able to actually unlock that value for the on the ground as opposed to siphoning it off along the way. And the, the banks and the supermarkets and the big companies were want to understand that too, but they didn't have the people employed in their organizations to do that kind of thinking, understandably. So it's, that was a fun project. One of the problems I have frequently found, particularly with large organizations, is that you do have somebody who is very interested in sustainability and resilience and wishes to change uh, the organization's outlook and approach. And it's difficult sometimes for them to actually accomplish change within an organization. It's one of the things that you cover as part of your trainings, how to actually try to change things with, from within an organization. The truth is that um, more and more, it's not so much about bitter resistance. It's about the challenge and the difficulty of making the change that's needed. This, what we need people to do is going to be very hard and there will be winners and losers. There will be some big losers and the winners may be in a completely different part of the economy. So, you know, if you're in a if you're in an inherently unsustainable business, you've either got to reinvent yourself or face the fact that you will be taken out eventually. If the, if, well, ultimately if nature has a way, but if we actually get our act together, we will have to change some of the things which, uh, where people, where many people feel still, they're still locked in, but they and they are, 
locked in. It's very hard for those people to, to, change, to change a system that is where the incumbents stand to lose so much. And are you optimistic that the business community will be able to do that and be able to do that in time to avoid the challenges that are already here? Well, we won't do it without the business community, that's for sure. We won't do it without capital and we won't do it without the business community. And the business community and the investors will tell you they won't be able to do it without decent policies. So we, we know that we're kind of locked into a complex interconnected system. Um, I'm optimistic. Um, yeah, I suppose I am optimistic that we will... Um, I suppose I'm hopeful that we will that we will pull back from the brink. I grew up in South Africa um, when it was hard to imagine things could turn around, and they did. Of course, they had some setbacks along the way, but um, I never believed that a, it was hard to imagine when I was a child that a peaceful transition would be possible, and yet it happened. So, I think it instilled a bit of belief in the human spirit in me. So I actually want to go back uh, in your June column. You actually start the column with a quotation from William Wordsworth poem, The World is Too Much With Us. I don't know whether or not you have a copy of that poem in front of you, but I was wondering if you could just read the first verse, the portion of it that you quoted at the beginning of that article. Sure. The world is too much with us. Late and soon, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Little we see in nature that is ours. We have given our hearts away, a sordid boon. And could you tell our listeners why it is that you decided to start that column with a poem, and in particular that passage from Wordsworth? At the time of writing that article, I was thinking about how we've been given this amazing time to pause and this amazing, as we were talking about earlier, this amazing um, moment when nature seemed to um, come more sharply into focus than ever. And it just struck me that we have spent so much of our human energy uh, trying to acquire things that we probably don't need. We want them, but we don't really need them. We've kind of lost sight of what um, things really matter in our lives. And if we took a moment to reflect, we might choose to value more highly uh, and therefore protect more fiercely. As you know, one of the things that we are doing in this podcast is featuring prior winners of the Bright Awards such as you. I'm curious as to what winning the Bright Award meant to you. Well, the reality is that winning the Bright Award meant to me personally an absolutely enormous um, amount. It was such an honor because we look at Stanford as a globally outstanding university. And if I'm absolutely honest, uh, it was also changed the way I think perhaps some people in the university saw both me and my work. I think it also came when this when the sustainability movement was at that sort of brink of going mainstream. So 
it was, you know, 2015 was that amazing year where we had the Paris Agreement, we had the SDGs. There were lots of people suddenly waking up to it. And the, the award for me, I think, shone a light on us at exactly the right moment. It gave people a sense of thinking, oh, well, actually, some people in the university said, well, I'm quite glad we've got them here because now we can, you know. So it, it, was, it was very, very timely as well. And one of the wonderful things about the, about the money uh, is that it allowed us to do things which we hadn't been paid to do. You know, when you grow a cottage industry, you, you do things that you've got clients for. And we wanted to do some things for which we didn't have any clients. We wanted to be more ahead of the curve than we could afford to be. And so we took on some projects. Uh, in particular, we did um, three pieces of work which I think we couldn't have afforded to do otherwise. One of them is we did a really important piece of work that we've been longing to do for a long time on business and justice. How can you create a framework for companies to understand whether they are uh, thinking about justice in an appropriate way. So we produced a really interesting report, which lots of companies picked up and used. And several of them came back, a big company came back to us only a year later and said, we made that a fundamental piece of our work in talking about our social sustainability agenda. So that was amazing. And that was funded by that. Polly, this has been a wonderful conversation. And I know that there are many listeners right now from the business community and outside of it who would be very interested in learning more about the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability and the various training uh, programs that you offer. Is there a website where people can go or other information uh, where, uh, that people can obtain? Yes, www.cisl.cam.uk, cisl.cam.ac.uk. Polly, thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk with us today. Well, thank you, Buzz. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. It's wonderful to um, reconnect and to share some of our ambition and excitement uh, with you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To hear more Bright Idea podcasts and to learn more about the 2020 Bright Award winner, Maria Ageneva, go to brightaward.com. Maria Ageneva is an indigenous leader working to protect snow leopard habitat and indigenous communities in Mongolia and Eastern Russia.